Welcome to Places, everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. Peron Yusuf Zada is a director of all sorts. She directs plays and she has a dual position at Jiva Theater Center as the Associate Artistic Director and the Director of Engagement. She's also a co-founder of Maya Directors, a consulting and advocacy group for artists of Middle Eastern, North African, and South Asian descent. In these roles, Perone frequently seeks to strike a balance between the work of making theater and what she calls disrupting the theater community. That latter role involves fostering conversations with audiences about complex and at times divisive subjects. Being an associate artistic director entails selecting and producing plays. Being a director of engagement entails questioning how people grapple with those plays. They're potentially at odds with one another. As Perone said in our conversation, am I supposed to row the boat or rock the boat? Perone admits that as a young theater artist, she was very deferential. She was just happy to be there. Now she directs and teaches around the country, and she not only advocates for stories about the Middle East and beyond, she's made it a business. This month, she was scheduled to deliver the keynote speech at the Humana Festival, which was canceled due to the coronavirus. The speech she was going to give was a reckoning with her younger self. She wouldn't have rocked the boat as a newcomer, but now it's part of her job description. Here's my interview with Peron Yousafzadeh. Hey, Peron, how's it going? It's going okay. How are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Are you in Rochester? I am. Yeah, I am. So we are trying to figure out sort of how we work in this new normal. Yeah. So I saw that you were going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Humana Festival. Can you share some of what you were going to talk about? Yeah. Uh, so, oh God, I was, um, yeah, in this sort of parallel life. Um, that's what I would have just done this past weekend. And in my thinking about it leading up to, um, you know, the weeks, it, it, it was canceled a couple weeks prior to um, the whole festival was canceled. Uh um, I was thinking a lot about um, sort of what I what I would have wanted to hear um, if I put myself back in my 22 year old self or my 20 something year old self, and um, because the the keynote was part of the Discover Weekend, which is um, the weekend of the festival where a lot of um, colleges and universities attend, and. I ended up just really looking back and reflecting on my path and how um, how I started as an actor and how the nature of the field for Middle Eastern actors was very different then from what it is now, although I still think it has a great deal of room for improvement. And that part of the pivot towards directing was about feeling like there wasn't really a place for me as an actor. No one was writing um, third culture kid, um, you know, Iranian American stories. Yeah. And I uh, figured that my identity was less relevant if I was a director be- because I wasn't going to be on stage. And so what business 
was it of anyone's or why would it matter that, you know, that I was Iranian American and, and that, you know, this was really just sort of the best way I could see to get to be a part of the art form that I really love. And that I also completely clicked more as a director um, than I did as an actor. And it wasn't just because I found my ethnicity to be a little bit of an impediment, but because I also knew that like something about me came alive directorially that didn't as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that of course, you know, then was a, you know, the beginning of a much longer and more difficult reckoning about, um, a kind of complicity in my own whitewashing and the way that like I had accepted an idea of erasure in trying to place myself in this field as a director with this this assumption that my identity didn't matter. Um, and of course, it has become probably one of the most foundational parts of the why I do what I do, the kind of work that I'm attracted to, the advocacy that uh, has become a really big part of my um, uh, career. Um, and so that was kind of the, that was the the crux of it. Um, as well as, you know, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot in light of what's been happening in this global pandemic, um, in terms of, uh, the, the, you know, the future of the American theater and, uh, which of course is incredibly uncertain right now, but is also, I think, probably going to be subject to understandably um scarcity uh uh a scarcity mentality and a lot of fear-based decision making Hmm. and how the work of um i think i i believe that the work of anti-racist theater is also um about a culture of abundance and a culture of possibility and that you don't, you know, that that anti-racist theater means that there isn't just one Black play in February. And then we say like, good job, we were inclusive this season, but that we're looking at things intersectionally and that we're looking at hyphenate identity and uh, and stories that uh, examine a, a not just necessarily one community as a monolith, but a, a cross-section of communities. So to me, you know, a lot of um, the, the stuff I was going to talk about still feels really important. It just feels like it's it's now I'm now thinking about all of those things and um, through a different lens. Already the the nature of the keynote I was going to give now feels honestly a little naive in in a post coronavirus now. Um, <laughs> sort of mindset well it's sort Uh, of telling your younger self what you now know and what you now know in february 2020 or when you were completing the speech is already a different knowledge mm -hmm. of what you now know in march 2020 but nonetheless Mm -hmm. it still speaks to what you hadn't quite grasped maybe at this early Mm-hmm. like more um, nascent stage of your artist artistic career. Yeah. You know, I also think that there were things that perhaps a younger generation of theater makers and artists are more savvy about than I was for better or for worse because of social media, because of the, an ability to exchange ideas and content at such a rapid rate. And you know, we had like the internet, <laughs> but, you know, when I was sort of coming of age, it was in the time of 
Friendster and there wasn't, yeah. I, I don't feel like there was that same sense of interconnectedness across the country. And when I teach, I'm always amazed by the fact that students in Austin, Texas or Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, are dropping the names of playwrights and plays and theater companies that I wouldn't have had the foggiest idea of when I was an undergrad because there just wasn't that same ability to share information. And so there are perhaps some things about, I would say, my journey that to um, a college student now might feel a little arcane. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, regardless of of whether one grew up in, you know, was born in the 80s like I was or, you know, was born in the 90s or the early 2000s, that the question of how we locate a place for ourselves in a field that's always telling us that it's too competitive and that there's not enough room for everybody, and particularly in how that affects immigrants and children of immigrants and people of color and various other communities. Um, those questions and that that challenge, I don't think that goes away. Um, I, I don't think that I don't think that's evaporated. And I think that there's more of a shared sense of empathy around that. And I think that there's more of a shared conversation perhaps than when I was in those shoes, I think I felt a little more siloed in that experience than perhaps I would now if I were however many years younger and going through it now. I think that the sort of like younger folks coming into the scene now have maybe for better or worse, so much less tolerance for the lack of diversity, like they're going to call it so quickly. So yes. it must be interesting to teach to that because you don't have to show them the benefit of that. They're probably there. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. I mean, and, 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 you know, it's interesting too, in some places, like there's some, you know, various parts of the country where while I was directing, like, you know, maybe the university that's affiliated with the theater might ask me to t uh, talk to a class. And like, you know, it's also interesting to see how, depending on like where in the country these conversations are happening, where the students are in relationship to these issues of inclusion and of anti-racism. Of course, it's a small data set, you know, and I'm not going to draw any huge conclusions from like one acting class in one part of the country versus another. But I have experienced just individually a certain amount of variation in that and a certain amount of variation in how, like you're saying, how quick to call it some students are, whereas in other places, maybe there isn't that shared vocabulary just yet. And maybe that vocabulary is still building. I want to take a quick break and talk to you about financial wellness. The term wellness is often associated with meditation retreats and skin treatments. But really, wellness just means health and stability, whether that's physical, emotional, mental, or financial. IFWA, the Institute of Financial Wellness for the Arts, is a company that is specifically dedicated to the well-being of artists. And their team of financial coaches and advisors are trained to help artists manage their money and plan for their futures. Because many artists are paid project to project, they don't always think about long-term planning. There's also that long-standing myth that because artists live to create, it somehow means they're not thinking about their finances. 
The advisors and coaches at IFWA are passionate about art too. That's why they're devoted to giving artists the tools, vocabulary, resources, and know-how to navigate their careers with confidence and manage their money in smart ways. And with IFWA, you can work with an advisor at no cost. All categories of artists are welcome. Musicians, actors, playwrights, designers, dancers, directors, and on and on. Check out the IFWA to reserve a meeting with a financial coach and ensure that you're on track for a successful financial future. And now back to the podcast. So when you are referring to anti-racist kind of actions, are you referring specifically to Ibram X. Kendi's book or is there sort of a, another source or reference that you're drawing from? He actually came to Rochester in November and spoke and that was so incredible to hear him speak in a city that has a lot of deep-seated challenges around racism, among other issues. And so the application for me of anti-racism to theater making and to leadership is more helpful in how it asks us to always be having that conversation in relationship to a conversation about power and um, privilege and the ways in which certain dynamics are accentuated if uh, the efforts at quote-unquote inclusion don't take that into account. Mm -hmm. So linking all of this to your current role, you, if I, if your title is still the same, you are at Jiva Theater Center as mm -hmm. the Associate Artistic Director and mm -hmm. the Director of Engagement. So it seems mm -hmm. like you do a combination of selecting the work to present and getting potential audiences excited about that work. So how do you balance those two? Yeah, it's a really, that's a really interesting question. And I think that that the, <laughs> as you probably will recall, I feel like this is the question Ann Bogart would say exactly. Too. <laughs> um, I feel like in some ways that my two job titles are in some ways at loggerheads with one another. Yeah, that's what it seems like. <laughs> yeah, right. Because like, an associate artistic director's job is to, you know, I direct a couple shows in the season and I'm the line producer on certain productions that I'm not directing. And it's all about keeping systems moving smoothly and communication flowing. And I think a director of engagement is a disruptor in the sense that if we are going to do that work meaningfully, and in a way that is transformative and not transactional, then that means that we have to be ready to transform and ready to let certain paradigms go and certain assumptions go in favor of a kind of thinking that is more inclusive. And so I find myself in a job where I I'm often asking, essentially, am I supposed to row the boat or rock the boat right now? <laughs> um, and what are the things that are worth rocking the boat for? And then when do I sort of let us find like a calm current for a little while before I raise my hand as the disruptor and say, call me crazy, but what if we dot, dot, dot? Yeah. And that... Uh, that is a strange and kind of exhilarating tension 
to have in this position, especially in a position that was newly created and that didn't have an engagement department at all preceding my hiring. And so I feel both an enormous sense of responsibility as well as a a certain kind of liberation in the fact that I didn't inherit a department with a bunch of already pre-established initiatives and programs that I'm supposed to keep executing, but that we're really building it from the ground up. And I have tried to make that process as, as mindful and thoughtful as possible because I think it is just so ridden with pitfalls, engagement work in the American theater. And I think that there are a lot of people who have admitted to falling into those traps. And I I think I've probably fallen into a few of them. So it's a little puzzle. I feel like I've been figuring out a puzzle for the last year or so. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Well, the thing, the, the tension that came to my mind in thinking about those two different roles occurring simultaneously is Mm -hmm. the role of the artistic director, the one who is planning a season, selecting work and directing the work. You want to think about the art first, like which plays are compelling and which Mm -hmm. one just stirs you and unsettles you and you can't explain why, but you have to get to work on it. And all these like really exciting things that create the magic of doing theater Mm-hmm. where you're not supposed to think about who's coming in the door and who's buying a ticket, but like, what is the work? Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. director of engagement is entirely about who might come through the door. And so mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about like, you know, let's say like a play like, like Disgraced, um, which has had a huge national life and it mm-hmm. won a Pulitzer and it had a Broadway production. And it's such a strong play in terms of its structure that it's so tightly written and, and like sort of brilliantly constructed that I think around the world, around the country, theaters are saying, this is a play to put on our schedule, on our season. And a lot of theaters are doing it. And I think very successfully, um, mm-hmm. this is a few years ago when it was like the second most produced play in America. Right. Um, and, but for the director of engagement, that might be a very tough play because it's so complicated and the characters are so flawed and there might be only one play in a certain town that year that involves anyone who's Muslim. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those kinds of questions are so challenging for the director of engagement to, to answer sure. and embark upon. Sure. Have you had yeah. the experience of selecting work that you weren't sure how to engage the wider community with? You know, that's a really good question. I, Half our season got canceled. And so some of the things I was I was really sort of looking forward to seeing how they were going to land for people and how we were going to be able to create engagement programming around them, unfortunately, are no longer. But um, mm. earlier in the season, we did a production of Eleanor Burgess's play, The Niceties. And there, it takes place in the office of a tenured white history professor. And it begins as uh, what we think is going to be a fairly innocent office hour session where she's reviewing the um, early draft of a paper her young Black student Zoe has written. And the play ends up becoming a really um, tense and provocative debate about who we write into and out of American history and how we can repair those erasures and a kind of education that favors certain people while uh, disappearing others. 
the really fascinating thing that I feel like I saw from the audience's response to the play was just how polarizing it was. And for me, it's, you know, everything Zoe says, I'm kind of like, yep, I agree with you. (laughs) I don't really, yeah, I don't think that's crazy. You know, and it was pretty divisive and we had audience members walk out and we had audience members write uh, passionate letters and make passionate phone calls to the theater about Mm -hmm. how upsetting this was. And, but, you know, interestingly, we did these, um, uh, not not talkbacks in the traditional sense, but they weren't like immediately after the play because we knew that people just needed to digest a lot like more than than those five minutes would allow. Yeah. Um, but we did a um, a series of them in the final week of performances, but from like 5.30 to 6.30. So the assumption was you saw the show maybe in the first week, maybe in the second week, maybe four days ago, and then you can come to one of these conversations after you've had a little time to process it. And there was this one person I'll never forget who came having left the show at the end of the first act and came to talk about it, which I thought was so interesting and yeah. really just does speak to how much it is our responsibility to create memorable experiences, but that that's not necessarily always pleasant. And that the conversations that we need to have the most aren't necessarily comfortable. More often than not, they're uncomfortable. And um, and it was just this really kind of incredible thing to see. Uh, while I had had initially this shock and a little bit of, I guess, maybe I felt a little despondent that that people found the ideas of the play as offensive as they did in some cases. And and I'm new to Rochester, and you know this is this was the second main stage show of my first full season, and so it was early on, and and the learning curve was very steep. And I think that that moment with that audience member really asked me to recalibrate and reframe my expectations, not to lower them, but to think about engagement in a truer way and to really embrace meeting an audience and meeting a community where they are for that person, you know, as hard as it was watching the play and as much as they were just infuriated by it and left at the end of the first act, we created a space for them to come back and talk about that feeling and why they had that feeling. I think that sort of quality over quantity mentality has stayed with me ever since. That's I don't know amazing. if I answered your question at yeah, all. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a great story. I love that. One of my biggest theater pet peeves is the immediate audience talk back, especially mm-hmm. when the play is is complex. I mean, I, I want to see complex plays, but I don't want to mm-hmm. stay for the talk back because people's reactions are so knee-jerk. And usually the people who are really like contemplative are thinking and the people yeah. who are knee jerk are talking. Yes. And there's, it's like the YouTube comment section. It's just so, yeah. it's like and so it weirdly unproductive. Gets, it weirdly gets competitive sometimes in mm-hmm. this weird, in this very strange way um, where, where it feels like the participants are at a certain point. I, I often wonder, is this what the, the room thinks actually, or is this where individuals are veering 
as they're being influenced by one another huh. in the effort towards building some kind of consensus idea. Um, yeah. That I, you know, what's what's truer, the response at the beginning of the talk back or the response is 30 minutes into the talk back? Yeah. And yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I have like a personal ritual where mm. when I go to see theater, I have this ritual that we can't talk about it for mm. like a certain period of time. Like certainly when you're walking out the door, God, no. But like even like on the sidewalk, like we're going to the subway, like you want to get something to drink, like <laughs> it has to be another topic. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. like 20 minutes in the other, either it's like my husband or it's like a friend. They're like, can we say if we liked it? <laughs> and that's just because I feel this need to just sit with the experience Mm -hmm. and I that's Mm -hmm. where it lends itself to the talk back I think that's so smart what you did to give people like the mental space to sit with a play that might be complicated and then to come back when they've gathered some thoughts. That's like, mm-hmm. I just really commend you for that. That's great. Uh, thanks. Thanks. It was a, you know, it was a group effort and we'd never done anything like that. And this was the first time that we were doing a play that we felt like, oh, we need to give audience members a list of resources when they walk out. Ways to continue to read about this, events where they could share in a dialogue around it and all of all of the various ways in which... Um, we we need to process and and that that was inspired by when I went to see slave play at New York Theater Workshop mm-hmm. and they did that very same thing and I remember receiving my resource list as I left and thinking oh that's a good this is a good thing we I bet there's many more plays where we could do something like this yeah and uh, yeah I guess just sort of thinking about how we contextualize how we collaborate you know again, not to bring it back to the coronavirus, but I do think that whatever the recovery from this looks like, it's going to require some innovation, some out-of-the-box thinking, and and the shedding of some norms and some paradigms. Again, the disruptor's talking here for a second. I think that the very economic and other circumstances that we will be facing are going to require us to innovate. And so in some ways, I can see if we don't succumb to scarcity and fear-based decision-making, I can see a world in which we can really work with one another, with our communities, with our like-minded organizational partners in order to come out the other side of this maybe stronger, maybe somehow more deeply rooted where we are and to the communities that we serve. Yeah, I can kind of see it going two ways. Like the fear-based decision-making might be, well, we have to guarantee high ticket sales. We have to make Mm -hmm. up for lost time. So Mm -hmm. let's only do musicals based on pop movies, popular movies. And the other would be like, what if we have this tabula rasa and we just come in and say, what were we too timid to do? Let's just go all out and do it. Mm-hmm. And that that latter option is is the one that really excites me about theater. And I hope that we're able to kind of see that happen. I actually want to have that idea as a lead into the next thing I want to ask you about, which is mm-hmm. Maya Directors, which is a group that you co-founded that advocates mm-hmm. for stories about the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, um, mm-hmm. uh, promoting more of those stories, more of those writers your family uh, has a background in the Middle East, in Iran. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Mm -hmm. Why did you choose those three regions together and not the one specifically of your background? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, So I I guess I'll take you through the origin story um, of Maya and how that evolved. There was a, a Middle East North America convening at the Lark. And three of my Maya co-founder colleagues, accomplices, Kareem, <laughs> Fakmi, Evren Ochkin, and Megan Sandberg-Zakian, and I were all in attendance there together. And Kareem and I already knew each other. And I think he already knew Evren or he already knew Megan. But we hadn't all four of us ever met. And we sort of had this joking moment of like, oh my God, look, it's, you know, a quorum, four Middle Eastern directors all in the same place. (laughs) Uh, We just kind of made this decision that we needed to start talking to each other. Why not um, start to share and start a dialogue, start a conversation? And so initially it kind of felt like a support group and, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and something that emerged really quickly was the fact that all of us were being asked pretty regularly by artists and by organizations for casting help when it came to casting Manasa actors. Mm -hmm. Um, And that this was always a favor that was being asked of us. And uh, more often than not, I, I would say probably nine times out of 10, we all volunteered and helped because that's what we do. Mm. Uh, and as we talked about it, we realized that when people want to cast actors, they hire a casting director. And when people want to cast Manasa actors, they email us. <laughs> and And I'm not saying that casting directors don't, no Manasa actors or, or aren't equipped to cast them, but it became clear that we needed to make this visible and name this as a, a business. Um, and not because we were like, oh, well, this is a money-making opportunity. It is a business. And yes, we do draw a very small occasional income from the jobs that we secure through Maya, but it was actually about legitimizing Hmm. that work and, and making our community more visible by saying, we are a service between the four of us. We know and have a database of an ever-growing database that folks can add themselves to all the time of Manasa actors all over the country. And that, um, that, in, in a sense, to say this is a service that you can pay for also says this is um, this is possible, you know, like we we can help you find these people and you can do these plays. It's not as hard as, you know, there's no pipeline issue. There's no lack of talent. Mm-hmm. And so if we name it, we can make it more feasible. We can set um, organizations and artists up for greater success. And so... That was a lot of the the motivation behind it. And uh, originally, when we uh, when we started that conversation, it was about the Middle East because the four of us all identify as Middle Eastern. As we continued talking about it, what emerged was a realization that because in casting there is, I think. While there is an ideal, let's say, to cast a Middle Eastern actor for a Middle Eastern role, that sometimes people look a little further afield. And sometimes 
for whatever reason, given whatever limitations, a South Asian actor ends up playing a Middle Eastern role or a North African actor plays a South Asian role. Basically, the the conclusion we came to was that we can't advocate for Middle Eastern stories and Middle Eastern stories alone if we are going to be naming and recommending South Asian actors for Middle Eastern stories. Mm. You know? mm-hmm. And that what we actually need to do is advocate for Manasa stories told by Manasa people. And so I think that that came out of a a decision to work towards abundance and um, and greater inclusion and a South Asian play getting produced is great for all of us. A North African play getting produced is great for all of us. The more that we advocate for one another, the more we're advocating for, you know, all of us together. Who are some of your favorite Manasa playwrights? Oh, gosh. Um, I love Mona Mansour. I'm a huge fan. I'm very fortunate. I got to direct her play. Um, uh, we swim, we talk, we go to war uh, at Jiva next spring, hopefully, when we're back in action. Um, I am a huge, huge fan of Rami's Monsef. He is an incredible performer and writer. And um, he and I have been working together on his play Three Farids, which is a clown play about representation in Hollywood <laughs> and is probably one of the funniest things I've ever read or worked on. I really love Yusuf El-Gindi's work. Mm. Um, yeah, those are just a few of some of the writers that I that I think are really on to something and have really unique voices. And I think also that's been the other sort of big takeaway for us as we continue to get to know more artists ourselves through Maya, but also something that's really important to us for theaters and for uh, leaders to know is that, you know, there isn't a Middle Eastern voice or a Manasa, a signature sort of Manasa play, that there's as much diversity and range artistically in our community as there is if you take four different white playwrights and put them side by side with each other. The hope is that I think in continuing to do this work that there's not just the one success story. There isn't the one Middle Eastern play or the one South Asian play or playwright that did exceptionally well that all of us then aspire to be the second one too, you know, but <laughs> yeah. that, you know, but that like, there can be many more, um, there can be many more plays that are as widely written and produced and celebrated as let's say you know disgraced was um several years ago yeah well whenever a play go or any kind of storytelling goes really deep on a certain cultural experience let's say a play like like ruined or eclipsed people who who know that background might come in and point out what feels authentic or inauthentic whereas a, a wider audience might just say like did I, did I respond to it? Did I feel moved by it? Mm-hmm. Um, this happens all the time. I mean, I, I just started watching Unorthodox on Netflix and right away mm-hmm. there's articles about the inaccuracies of the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. So people, uh-huh. people will come in and say like, oh, I found this to be inauthentic. This is inaccurate. Um, do I then take the whole story seriously? Whereas sometimes the benefit of being not from that place is saying like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing to be right or wrong about. I just thought, was I compelled by the story? 
how do you feel about that balance of accuracy versus truth? I mean, I think it's about intent, you know, intentionality in a lot of ways that like, there's a difference in the sense that if, if we know that we're adjusting something for dramatic effect and for the the crafting of that theatrical moment and taking things into account, like the rhythm of it, the musicality, the the way in which it um, underscores the the dramatic event of that scene, then we can find truth. But I think when things feel inauthentic to me is when they feel unexamined. And when, when it feels like that conversation was not had, you know, and that, that there wasn't an acknowledgement in the making of how something culturally specific was deliberately intentionally adjusted um, for the for the sake of a kind of dramatic truth. Mm. You know, I also think that this is why it's really important that there are multiple voices in the room and why it's really important to me that I um, that as Maya were obviously advocating to be the cultural production consultants so that um, one playwright, for instance, is not being asked to be the expert on on everything having to do with cultural authenticity or um, specificity. And it's, it's just not going to make the best work because it's only one perspective. We work in a collaborative art form, obviously. So in, in this sense, I don't know why we would rely on only one voice to be the authority when in every other way our work is about sharing that authority collaboratively. Don't you feel like your 22-year-old self would be delighted to hear you say this? Oh, she would. Yeah, she is. <laughs> Why? She would. She would be, she'd be pretty floored. Um, what do you think she'd say about you? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's funny. I was so deferential and had really, I think, kind of internalized, again, scarcity thinking in the sense that, you know, I I was just so grateful to be here. You know, I was so grateful for every opportunity and never wanted to make a fuss and just wanted to put my head down and do the work and and that, um, you know, people would um, see that and appreciate that. And that was going to be how I was going to sort of make my way. I think 22-year-old me um, would probably, uh, you know, would probably be like, wow, you got a mouth on you, you know? <laughs> um, I think it took a, a long time to pivot from that. And, and, and it was very gradual to um, realize that, um, that, you know, as artists, um, if what we are seeking is truth, then, you know, we definitely have to live in our own and, um, and that uh, you find your tribe by naming what you want and what you believe in and then seeing who lights up and who responds to that and who builds on top of that with you. And so, yeah, I, uh, I, 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 yeah, I think she'd, she'd probably be like, maybe you should settle down, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Anytime soon. So I think like, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, um, it's too late now. Can't go back. <laughs> well, it's really awesome talking with you. And I, I hope you get to deliver that keynote 
at some point. Thanks. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.